afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the DOGS program. We are the DOGS, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday to promote and defend public education. That's education that is public in ownership and control, public in access, public in purpose, and public in accountability. Now, this week we'll be playing you excerpts from a web seminar that happened last week. Uh, the Australian Fabians got together with Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell, who were the co-authors of a book called Waiting for Gonski, which we've spoken about before on the DOGS program. We'll be listening to some excerpts from this web seminar, but if you'd like to see the entire thing or listen to the entire thing, you can go to the Australian Fabians website or to the Australian Fabians Facebook page, and you'll find links there. Uh, they do refer to some charts and graphs. Uh, where possible, I've, I've gotten rid of those uh, references, but um, if you are interested in finding them, you can find them on the Conversation website where they've done a book review on Waiting for Gonski. So go to the Conversation uh, forward slash waiting for Gonski, and you can have a look at some of the facts and figures that they've put into charts and graphs for you there. But enough from me, let's go into it. Uh, first off, you'll be hearing uh, Jeff McCracken Hewson, who is the convener of the Little Web Seminar, and he'll be introducing Chris Bonner. On to the web seminar that asks, should all Australian schools be public? Right. Welcome, everyone, to um, tonight's event when we're going to be asking the question, should all Australian schools be public? We welcome our speakers tonight, um, Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. My name's Jeff mccracken and I'm the chair of the Victorian branch of Fabians, um, and I'm standing in tonight for our wonderful events manager, Fernanda Trecenti, uh, who put this event together. In the spirit of reconciliation, Australian Fabians acknowledges the traditional owners, the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. And we pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As someone who, who grew up in England, I'm, I always found it odd uh, that in supposedly egalitarian Australia, uh, it's pretty much assumed that anyone who can possibly afford it uh, will buy a privileged education for their children at a private school. Um, and over the years, I've seen fees become more and more astronomical, schools spending more and more on extravagant facilities that even, even you know, local authorities can't afford. They have better swimming pools, better auditoriums than, than are available to the general public. And yet parents uh, are unable to escape from paying more and more money uh, from buying this uh, education for their children if they can. Uh, and while the private schools are sucking up more and more of the private dollar and more and more also often of the tax dollar, um, public schools often find it difficult to provide even the basic necessities uh, for the education of children. And it's, it's puzzling as to why is Australia stuck in this way of doing things? And what is this doing to educational standards across the board? Is there a better way? 
And, and I must say, given the grip that private education in, has in Australia, it almost seems unthinkable to ask the question, should all Australian schools be public? But we will be asking exactly that question tonight with the help of two outstanding experts on the subject, Chris Bonner and Tom Greenwell. So our first speaker tonight is Chris Bonner. Chris is a former teacher and secondary school principal. He was a previous head of the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council, and he is a co-author with Jane Caro of um, The Stupid Country and What Makes a Good School. He has contributed to a range of publications and media and has jointly authored papers on Australia's schools in association with the Centre for Policy Development and the Gonski Institute for Education. So welcome, Chris. Um, over to you. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'd firstly like to acknowledge that I'm on the lands of the Darug people in north of Sydney and pay my respects to elders uh, past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the heritage of the Australian Fabians and I I remember those wonderful pocket-sized policy books which helped shape progressive thinking during the 1960s. That, that dates me and I suspect some of you. They make powerful cases for equity and fairness. And yet, decades later, the provision of schooling and the funding of schools unfairly advantages uh, some sections of the community over others and or at their expense. No longer are all publicly funded schools available to all the public. They should be. Public in their obligations, equitable and equal in their operation and inclusive in who they serve. In that sense, yes, all Australian schools should indeed be public. Now, here's the rub. In, in financial terms, the vast majority of our schools already are public. Um, most private schools are funded similar amounts going to public schools with similar demographics, but their obligations and operation over the last four decades haven't caught up with the money. Hence, we have this really odd an unlevel playing field of schools where uneven rules and resources allow the private sector to enrol who can pay, who they like, and if they like. Uh, and the result is this hierarchical system of schools that is unequal and frankly no longer delivers, marginalising public schools to the point where they're increasingly playing out, you'll remember this, playing out John's, John Howard's appalling suggestion that they be so, just safety nets for the poor. Um, the, the, the history of school education is littered with evidence of very unlevel playing fields. Um, I grew up in a little town in New South Wales where the local Catholic school was the poorest in more ways than one. Um, yeah, on, on the other hand, some kids from out of town went to city boarding schools. My public school enrolled the kids from both, both ends of town, both sides of the tracks. And that all started to change from the 1960s, but especially from the mid-80s. Quite a dramatic slide. On average, around the mid-80s, the public and private sectors enrolled a reasonable mix of kids based on family income. But let's see what happened next. Each line shows the changing portion of low-income families in the private and public sectors. Only the public sector is enrolling more and more of the poor. Uh, you know, John Howard, here we come. And many of you will you'll remember the frenetic debates about public and private schools at the time, and a variety of claims and myths did the rounds. We also rightly fretted over the implications of these trends for inclusive schooling, social and cultural capital, bridging and bonding, social harmony, and much more. What was happening was part and parcel of competition and choice. What was happening to schools and the growth of the private school sector? But something else was something else quite interesting happening. I, I was principal of a middle SES public 
high school at the time, surrounded by higher SES schools. And I could see this growing enrollment segregation. At the time, the evidence was anecdotal and wasn't expressed in numbers. But these days, the numbers leave no room for doubt. I do remember volunteering my school uh, to participate in this interesting international testing pro project. Uh, uh, this project testing, and I was keen to see what it would show. Then as the 2000s started to unfold, Australia began to feel the consequences of separating the advantaged and the disadvantaged into different schools. And that testing program, now known as PISA, was pointing to the achievement gaps between the two. And it started to reveal a relative decline in overall student achievement. And really, we had been sowing the seeds of a looming disaster, which is still with us. The most common response to this, including from the Productivity Commission today, has been to point the finger at schools alone, ushering in decades of school level reforms that haven't really altered this awful scenario. We haven't touched the, the overarching structural reforms and sectoral problems, which must be addressed if anything is to, is to change. Why must it change? Why else is this segregation so significant? Well, a decade ago, the Gonski Review showed how the increasing segregation of kids was strongly linked to unequal student achievement. The achievement scores of schools are sadly linked to school SES. So what happens when students at all SES levels leave their school and enrol higher up the SES ladder? Something they are now, I might add, doing in droves. Now their achievement scores increased not because they're in better schools as such, but because they were surrounded by higher achieving peers with everything that goes with it. So what happened then is that the Gonski Review reported that the collective impact of, of the SES of a student's peers is even better than the impact of each student's own family. When it comes to school achievement, it's who you sit next to that matters. It's the student's peers that matter most. And hence we have Australia's school education wicked problem. Parents and teachers, parents and teachers know about this peer effect, and that knowledge underpins the enrolment shift from low SES to higher SES schools. Students who can choose to cross our cities each day to attend the schools enrolling the engaged, the aspirant, and the well-resourced. And sadly, competition between schools is about getting a critical mass of these students with the winning schools. They're the ones with an entry price or other enrolment discrimination combined with taxpayer fueled resource advantages. Now the Gonski Review that we all know about, 10th anniversary of this year, was told about the primacy of these peer effects. They knew and they reported on it, but they didn't really challenge the drivers of enrolment discrimination and social segregation. That's our beef with the Gonski Review as outlined in our book. So guess what happened then? Surprise, surprise, the post-Gonski years, it is now worse. Now, here's what happened to measurable school achievement as we illustrate in the book. And you can see the declining in those, in those core subjects, science, reading, math. It, but it's not just PISA. There's a wealth of data in Australia to show how the distribution of high-achieving kids and high-achieving schools has created a widening achievement gap between schools. Now, at the end of this year, in December each year, we get very excited about the high school certificate or VCE results. The school by school results are usually quite predictable and reflect their enrolment profile. The high SES schools, they 
have a reasonably constant share of high VCE scores. But it is an unfolding disaster down the SES ladder. Over time, our lower SES schools have basically lost much of their academic profile, much of the profile they had in the past. It's even worse in New South Wales because we now have 50 selective schools. In effect, we are cementing, what we're doing, we are cementing the impact of peers on learning in what is an increasingly social class system of schools in almost every community in Australia. Our disadvantaged 50% of schools, they are gaining a bigger share of the most disadvantaged kids. You can see between uh, 2012 and 2018, their share of the disadvantaged kids, the Q1 kids we call them, has grown substantially. And they have a, 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 a getting a reduced share of the advantage. It's not necessarily cause and effect, but it shows a strong association between the two. That is school slash family SES and, and achievement trends. So who goes where to school now becomes very significant. The common debates about schools are about their funding. And in this post-Gonski era, we should be really funding the most needy schools to lift them and reduce our achievement problem. But it isn't happening anywhere near the pace and extent required. Money is important. The only people who say money is not important are those with plenty of it. But other resources going to schools are also unevenly distributed. For example, there's supposed to be a shortage of teachers. I wrote something in The Age and The Herald in the recent article. There's actually a surplus of teachers hiding in plain sight. Most of them are in the higher fee independent schools, as evidenced in data about student-teacher ratios. And these same schools outspend thousands of others, especially in all areas, especially in, uh, in capital works. And you know the dialogue. Some people might say, yeah, well, so they do th these things with their fee income, so what? But the real question is, what should be the role of governments when public funding must, makes a, a bad situation worse? Now, it's long been the case that the equity intention of public resourcing of schools is undermined by private resourcing. And it's sometimes referred to, uh, you might have seen the writings of Dean Ashenden, he refers to it as a funding system at war with itself. Now, there's some of the resulting weirdness. The total funding figures, one after the other, they show private schools well ahead in the high Erixia schools the private schools are obviously well ahead in total resourcing. Uh, so what governments do backfires in what governments try to do. They're also ahead in teacher supply. And, and again, especially in the higher SES schools, here it comes. That's really the teacher shortage around Australia is apparently in the secondary is apparently around 4,000 teachers. The independent sector around Australia has a surplus in the sense that uh, they're not needed to get the same results as government schools, a surplus of 7,000. Then now it's interesting. And then I went to, I thought about the, what, what difference does this make in reading and writing in what schools achieve, the outcomes, the student outcomes. When school apples are compared with school apples, in other words, if you're comparing schools with similar demographics, similar enrollment profiles, they achieve at very similar levels, no matter what sector they're in. But of course, they are regarded, the private sector regarded as better schools. It doesn't stack up on results. So private schools have harvested the higher achievers, the resource bonuses that come with them. They spend much more to get similar results. 
I've previously estimated that this much more is about $5 billion each year. Now, just imagine what could be achieved if even the public part of all that useless extra resourcing could be re redirected to those who really need it. But what private and indeed selective schools, especially in New South Wales, do have in overall terms, they have the lion's share of the higher achieving students, arguably the best resource of all. I argue that the most important resource in schools enters school each day wearing a school uniform. Now, as a, school, as a former school principal, the resources I most wanted for my school was a better share of these higher achieving students. <laughs> I worked fairly hard to get them. But my school was ambushed by the establishment of a selective school down the road to join the four private schools already nearby. Of course, my former school might um, eventually be fully funded according to the so-called Gonski funding system, but not enough will change. The surrounding schools, unlike mine, will alone decide who they feel obliged to serve, which students come and which students go, who teaches them, how much parents will pay in fees, what rules will the school create and, and enforce, even to what laws the schools might feel obliged to comply with. This is the system we have to fix. And in policy terms, this is where the going gets tough. But in getting to this point, I had the easy task. <laughs> now I'm going to pass to Tom to come up with the solutions. We've just been listening to Chris Bonner, who's the co-author of Waiting for Gonski. He was speaking at a web seminar last week about uh, a web seminar titled Should All Australian Schools Be Public? Now, uh, I'd like to point out the dogs don't necessarily agree with everything that Chris and Tom come up with, but uh, we're happy to uh, take part in the discussion. Uh, we'll have a quick break and then we'll come back and listen to co-author Tom Greenwell. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Welcome back. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital or 3cr.org.au. Uh, we, today we're listening to a web seminar that was hosted by the Australian Fabians last week uh, that featured 
Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner, who are co-authors of Waiting for Gonski. And now we're going to go over to what Tom Greenwell sees as some of the problems and some possible solutions. Tom Greenwell um, teaches history and politics uh, in the ACT public education system. He writes about uh, Australian education policy for Inside Story, for the Canberra Times, um, and he has explored a wide range of topics, um, including the growing segregation in Australian schooling, the history of Australian education, and contemporary trends and challenges. And he has previously worked as a research officer with the Australian Education Union. So Thanks very much, Jeff. So what solutions do we propose to address the problems that beset Australian education, the problems Chris outlined? What is our answer to the question, should all Australian schools be public? We argue that it is time for Australia to establish a common public framework of obligations and responsibilities that applies equally to all taxpayer funded schools. In other words, a level playing field for all schools to operate on. The first part of this presentation will deal with the what. Uh, my goal will be to make it really clear exactly what we mean by the common public framework. After that, I will look at the why, the arguments for a common public framework before considering some objections to what we're proposing and then concluding with some remarks about achieving positive change in practical political terms. Okay, so what, what do we mean by this common public framework for all Australian schools? In the first instance, publicly funded schools should not be permitted to charge entrance fees. Uh, and that's just to go back, this is really the essence of what we're proposing, that all taxpayer funded schools should be free to the user. And then publicly funded schools should not be permitted to have exclusive or selective enrolment practices, other than those strictly defined to support their special ethos. So we believe, and international examples illustrate, it's perfectly possible to have common enrolment obligations while allowing for um, diverse kind of ethoses amongst schools. The additional element of the common public framework is that all schools are entitled to full public funding. Um, otherwise, they have to charge fees and have to um, charge the user. And finally, and really critically, what the common public, public framework would involve is needs-based funding, um, not in the sense, uh, well, in, in the sense that no matter the sector, students in comparable schools should receive exactly the same total funding. Um, and that's quite different to say the Gonski plan, which was called needs-based funding, but it always meant uh, non-government schools would receive uh, a needs-based funding amount and then charge fees at whatever level they like. And by virtue of that, have a total resource advantage over comparable public schools. All right, so what's this going to look like in practice? Well, we get a really um, kind of practical example if we look at a place like um, Ontario in Canada. Uh, so, you know, when we abolished state aid here in Australia in the 19th century, the Canadians went down a different path where they decided to um, extend full public funding to minority religious schools. So what that means today is that Catholic schools in Ontario are free, they're fully publicly funded, 
And in access and, and enrolments, they are just as public as Australian public schools. At the same time, in character and ethos, they are just as Catholic as Australian Catholic schools. Now, um, we're not saying we have to imitate exactly what um, a place like Ontario does, but it gives us a really concrete sense of how we could have very different arrangements than what we're used to here in Australia. And it's certainly not just Canada, in places like Netherlands, uh, New Zealand, Belgium, Scotland, um, countries around the world, uh, church schools are fully funded, but they're also um, fully accessible and much more accessible than um, church schools in Australia, who, who largely exclude the poor, as, as Chris showed. All right, so that's what Chris and I um, propose in, in Chapter 10 of Waiting for Gonski. And um, I'd now like to move to the next part of the speech, which is why? How would what we're proposing create better schools and a fairer society? In the first instance, a common public framework eliminates the drivers of segregation. So, you know, Chris showed that graph, which showed how, um, you know, this increasing concentration of disadvantaged students in the public system. In fact, we have um, one of the most socially segregated school systems in the OECD. And um, the main driver of that is unregulated fees. I don't know whether people saw the Sydney Morning Herald report last week, which showed that private school fees in Sydney have increased by 50% over the last decade, um, despite all the taxpayer funding these schools receive. So of course they exclude the poor. Of course we have a socially segregated school system. This is the first way that a common public framework will eliminate the drivers of segregation. And let's, let's be frank about the, sister, the situation at the moment. It is, you know, to, to speak plainly, a system of soft apartheid. Indeed, in many places, the segregation in our school system contains a racial as well as economic dimension. Uh, so, so that's the first uh, driver of segregation that we would eliminate. A common public framework would likewise prohibit exclusive enrolment practices, and it would end the taxpayer fueled resource advantages, which help some schools attract uh, um, advantage students and high performing students away from other schools that must be available to all. It would mean that non-government schools would be funded on exactly the same basis as government schools with similar student profiles, size and location. Our present social hierarchy would be replaced with schools which serve much more socioeconomically mixed student populations. A common public framework would eliminate the segregation that is a blight on our school system. And let's be really, really clear about this. Even if the plan set out by the Gonski Review, which is you know, really the, the pollster for uh, progressives and um, public education advocates, even if it was implemented to the letter, the drivers of segregation would remain completely unaltered. Funding all schools to the schooling resource standard is urgently important, make, make no mistake about that. But without a common public framework of obligations and responsibilities for all taxpayer funded schools, the structural problems will remain. The unworkable combination of public funding 
with unregulated school fees, the inevitable enrollment discrimination against those who can't pay, and unequal access of schools to the critical resource of high achieving um, and advantaged students. What we need is, a fair, is fair funding and a level playing field. So the second, that's the second big reason I wanna offer for the common public framework that we're proposing is that it will um, address the great problem that Chris pointed out. It will reduce the outsized impact of what are called negative peer effects. How's that gonna happen? Well, um, reducing concentrations of social disadvantage in any school means there are less intensive demands on teacher time increasing the individual attention that each child receives. A larger group of motivated and high achieving students increases a school's capacity to engender a shared sense of the value of education and a strong culture of attendance and engagement. Thirdly, it can have a powerful effect on the curriculum, both in terms of the subjects that a school offers and also to how teachers pitch lessons to um, classes. And uh, last, but by no means least, the cumulative impact of concentrated disadvantage can take a large toll on teacher morale and affect a school's capacity to recruit and retain teachers, um, exacerbating the kind of teacher shortages that Chris was talking about. When schools become more socioeconomically mixed, it is much easier to attract and retain staff. And so we get a sense of how a common public framework could transform Australia's education system for the better when we look at Canada. Canada's framework of free comprehensive schools is much less segregated than Australia's and it produces much better outcomes than Australia's unlevel playing field. Canada outperformed Australia in all subject areas in the 2018 PISA tests run by the OECD, just as it has in every round of PISA since the test's inception the start of the century. The PISA student questionnaire also shows that disadvantaged Canadian children are much more likely than their Australian counterparts to feel that they belong at school. Bright Canadian kids from tough backgrounds are more likely to believe they will succeed after school. So it's not just about the outcomes of school, it's about the experience of school. Something uh, is happening in Canada where very similar societies uh, in, in so many ways, um, this correlation, we argue, is very likely due to the fact that their schools are much more socioeconomically mixed. But it would be wrong to imagine that we face a zero-sum scenario in which more mixed schools will only achieve gains for some at the expense of others. Our school system is actually failing to effectively serve uh, uh, advantaged students and, and high achieving students, students from all backgrounds. In fact, uh, an array of evidence indicates uh, that significant, significant declines in student achievement amongst the most high uh, achieving and most advantaged students um, across our schools. And study after study has concluded that even though Non-government schools have a large resource advantage over public schools. Student achievement is no higher when comparing the results of students from similar social backgrounds. 
So why is this? Why is our school system not only failing disadvantaged kids, but even advantaged kids? John Hattie, the most influential education researcher in Australia possibly, explains our predicament this way, and I quote, social stratification is sharper in Australia and a lower proportion go to socio socially mixed schools than in most countries that we wish to compare, with which we can wish to compare. Paradoxically, this not only leads to more low-income students facing greater obstacles to educational achievement because they are segregated into residualized schools, but also to more cruising schools, serving better off students, but not adding significant value to their educational achievement. This latter trend is a major contributor to Australia's declining educational performance. A common public framework would eliminate the capacity of schools to cherry pick already high achieving students. It would therefore shift the focus of innovation and improvement to where it needs to be, value adding, taking the kids who start behind their peers and turning their lives around. Instead of competing to attract cut the custom of the most advantaged families, schools will be encouraged to compete on their ability to progress the learning of the most disadvantaged children. So I've suggested three arguments for a common public framework. It will reduce segregation, it will reduce the impact of negative peer effects, and it will refocus Australian schools on value adding rather than cherry picking. I now wanna consider two possible objections to what we're proposing. The first is the argument that it's simply not affordable for governments to fund all Australian schools. Now, this is not the case for the simple reason Chris provided at the start of his presentation. Non-government schools already uh, receive taxpayer funding at similar levels to those of equivalent public schools. In fact, the ABC reported in 2018 that a third of non-government schools receive more taxpayer funding than at least half of comparable public schools. The degree of parity when it comes to taxpayer funding can be seen in this table. What we're seeing here is um, across the sectors, schools who serve similar kinds of students, are a comparison of their funding. So if you look at the bottom row in the table, Ixia, uh, 1050 to 1099. These are quite advantaged schools in terms of the students they enrol. And you'll see that independent and Catholic schools get about 95% of the recurrent funding on average um, as government schools. So it's not, not much behind in terms of taxpayer funding. And then you move up um, to the row above and the row above that, which are um, schools which are really average in terms of the, the background of the students they enrol. And non-government schools start to actually get more taxpayer funding on average than uh, government schools. So the upshot of all of this is that to fully fund non-government schools at the same level as public schools in a common public framework would cost about a billion dollars in additional recurrent expenditure and a uh, billion dollars uh, of additional capital expenditure to um, fund uh, non-government schools in the same way public schools currently are. So it's not a question of affordability, it's a question of priorities. 
we argue that we cannot afford not to address the fundamental causes of inequity and underachievement in Australia's school system. If we're going to have a conversation about skills, about full employment, about improving productivity, we simply cannot uh, afford to um, ignore the drivers of the declining achievement in our schools. I want to turn now to a, a second quite different objection, and that is the question of whether public funding should be provided to religious schools at all, or if state, or if state aid is an uh, inescapable reality, um, should it be as minimal as possible? On this account, you know, we definitely shouldn't fully fund church schools. Our response is effectively, why not? Perfectly secular countries like New Zealand, Canada and the Netherlands fully fund, fully publicly fund church schools. In practice, it means that every citizen can access a free, publicly funded education, irrespective of their conscientious beliefs about whether education should include a religious dimension. It is a pluralistic form of secularism in which no group, religious or otherwise, is favoured by the state. Chris and I have devoted our careers to working in secular state schools. We will always argue that the tolerance, diversity and inclusivity they embody is the best option for every child, no matter what background they come from. But at a certain point, it is better to agree to disagree. Uh, state aid was abolished in the 19th century and the consequence then was that public education did not provide what one quarter of the population wanted from education. A public education system should be big enough to contain the disagreements and diversity that define our community. Finally, I wanna make some brief remarks on, what, uh, on achieving change. So um, if there's a, a philosophical case to extend full public funding along with public obligations to all schools, the pragmatic argument is even stronger. Opposing public funding of religious schools has not only proved to be futile, but self-defeating. It has produced a powerful coalition of the religious and the rich, what Gough Whitlam once called an alliance of God and mammon. And it is this alliance which undergirds the status quo and makes positive change next to impossible. Consider the no school loses a dollar demand that derailed the Gonski process. It effectively conflated the situation of the most overfunded, luxuriously resourced and exclusive high fee independent school with that of the struggling parish school in the outer suburbs uh, of, of our cities or um, in our regional towns. Whenever the case for equity has been made over the last 50 years, elitism has been defended via an appeal to re religious choice. Instead of getting even further bogged down in this stalemate, we need to radically reshape the conversation and build a choice and equity coalition to defeat the elitists. A choice and equity coalition founded on the idea that every publicly funded school should be free. A choice and equity coalition united in opposition to the use of public monies to provide some children with privileges not available to others and, and, and public funding of schools that are only available to the few. We need to isolate the elitists and focus our attack exclusively on them. 
Imagine if politicians were able to go the elect to the electorate promising not only needs-based funding, but the end of school fees as well. It's a vision that is ambitious and would have to be fought for, but it is achievable. In conclusion, Chris and I strongly believe that to achieve progress in Australian education, we need to start a new conversation. A conversation that imagines new possibilities and sets aside outdated assumptions. In offering a potential solution, a common public framework for all Australian schools, we're not trying to conclude this conversation. We are hoping to start it. So we are very open to criticisms, contributions and different perspectives. But we will insist that in, in order to be fruitful, this conversation has to engage with two fundamental realities. Firstly, Australia's school system is highly segregated and characterised by pronounced concentrations of social disadvantage. And secondly, there is an extensive body of evidence that shows that these concentrations profoundly harm student learning. Like all evidence, this research can be contested. It is open to varying interpretations. There are numerous, numerous potential policy responses. But to simply ignore it, as much policy debate does at present, witness today's Productivity Commission report, is neither intellectually honest or morally defensible. The question then for all of us is if a common public framework is not the best way to address these pressing problems, what is? Well, firstly, welcome back. Uh, you are still listening to the dogs, I hope. Uh, that was Tom Greenwell, who uh, is a co-author of Waiting for Gonski. And I'd like to point out that the dog's position does differ very, very much from uh, Tom's position, where Tom sees no problem with a needs policy. The dogs have always seen a problem with the needs policy because it does get played. It gets gamed and it becomes the greeds policy. Uh, there, Unfortunately, there are just some school boards that are not accountable. We are not transparent. We Once we give public money to certain educational bodies, we have no way of knowing what that money is being spent on. And unfortunately, until that transparency becomes apparent, there's no way the dogs would ever agree with the idea of funding church schools as Tom sees is some kind of viable solution. The dogs are vehemently opposed to the entanglement of church and state. And uh, you can find out more about the dog's position on that at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Yeah, we'll be uh, listening to a little bit more of the discussion from the Australian Fabians right after this break. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
about their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs program on 3CR. Yes, today we're listening to excerpts from a web seminar that was held by the Australian Fabians with Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner, the co-authors of the book Waiting for Gonski. We've heard uh, from them and now they, here's just a couple of questions that were posed by some of the people at the seminar. So now it's back to Tom, Chris, Jeff, Kath and Jane. Do you consider facilities at all in the level playing field um, proposal? Um, I know it's not core, but um, as I've said in my written little thing here, um, the lack, the general lack of transparent and equitable processes for major school upgrades invites port barreling on a large, large scale. And uh, this can have an impact on, on learning. For instance, Coburg High is 21 specialist learning spaces under entitlement and we lose senior kids because we have no hands-on learning. So that's just an example. But um, our children, our schools in Victoria, we proposed a benchmark for facility or that there be a benchmark for facilities and that no non-government schools should receive public capital works funding until all public schools are equally brought up to this level playing field of facilities. <laughs> but I realise facilities may not be you know, within your remit, but I was just curious to know whether that is ever considered. Well, just uh, just 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 a quick comment that our calculations of the cost of um, absorbing the the, the, the non-government sector includes the fact that the capital expenditure has to be uh, no different to what it is what it is in similar government schools. There's no way that governments would take on or would be expected to take on the the huge over expenditure and basically uh, wasted expenditure taking place in this resources arms race between the high fee non-government schools um so absolutely there have to be regulations around that sorry tom i cut yeah. you off before you... no no thanks i just wanted to add to that you know absolutely yes and um we completely agree with you catherine and i'd just thanks. like to make the additional point that one of the things one of the reasons why capital funding is so important is that these, you know, uh, incredible facilities and so on are all part of, you know, they're the open nights, they're the marketing strategy, and it's pulling students in. So when we look at the very uneven spread of students across our schools in socioeconomic terms, those, you know, resource advantages and the advertising that you do around the flash facilities is, is part of it. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Mm. Um, there have also been a couple of people asking about, you know, how on earth do you, do you overcome the opposition to some of the things that, that you're proposing? And Jane Kenway, who has a question along those lines. Um, Hi. 
to you both. And, and thank you so much for your book, which I must say I thought was extremely, not only beautifully written, but uh, very compelling. And um, <clears throat> I think one of the um, real difficulties is always the incredible power of the private school lobby in combination with the with the Catholic lobby. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you've indicated that you might be able to separate the two uh, in, in lobbying for the sort of thing that you're talking about. But uh, my sense is that the, that the Catholic lobby um, in some ways rides on the back of the private school lobby. The poor private schools ride on the back of the rich private schools. The rich private schools ride on the back of the poor private schools by claiming we're not only rich in, in the independent sector, we're, we're, we're also very you know, wide ranging. And they've been, it's not this God, just God and mammon, it's also this, um, it's sort of a, an alliance of convenience between all these particular lobbying groups that is historical and will be quite difficult to untangle. So it, my question is, how, how might you do that? I mean, on, in principle, what you're suggesting uh, has a lot of appeal equity, but in practice, that lobby is so powerful, disentangling it would be very difficult. Well, we'd, I think we'd start from why, why have we been trying and failing to introduce needs-based funding since the Whitlam government? Yeah. And, and our answer to that question, is, it's a big, big question, but there's the key part of the answer is what you're alluding to, Jane, is this critical alliance between the rich and the religious. And it means whenever elitism is criticised, there's always this argument, but now you're attacking choice. Now people who want to choose uh, an education in accordance with their conscientiously held beliefs, they're, well, the fees are going up and, the, and all this kind of thing. And we, the strategy here is to say, if you want choice, we support that. This will be a politician going to the election going, not only are we going to reduce your school fees, you don't have to pay them. Because actually our school system doesn't support choice at the moment. Most yeah. poor Catholics don't access a Catholic education. Um, and, and so it would be about separating that coalition and isolating the people who are just really about um, resource advantages for their children in a gated community. And then I think once you isolate that group, then you have a chance. It's still, still a huge battle to fight. Yeah. And I'll just say on, on achieving change, you know, um, a, a couple of years ago, I, um, Adrian Piccoli suggested that all primary schools should be um, fully publicly funded. A very significant politician, a Catholic himself. Um, just in the last week, uh, the Blueprint Institute, hardly you know, left wing, raised the prospect of regulating school fees because they're government funded and they're going up at astronomical rates. And where's the public benefit in that? Um, so I think, you know, we've got to keep chipping away at changing the conversation. May I just follow up a quick, quick bit there? Um, in terms of the Catholic schools, obviously within them, there's a, the very the high status Catholic schools, and then there's the systemic schools. And uh, I wonder whether you think the the high status Catholic schools would come on board or whether they'd be satisfied shifting into a, a group of unfunded, unfunded uh, um, elite schools. The reason I like our suggestion in so many ways <clears throat> is going to put the cat among the pigeons. Yes. Um, you could just imagine, you could just imagine the conversations that would take place yeah. in, 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 in amongst the heads of school authorities. Mm. Um, um, 
and of course, Catholic schools are an incredibly diverse mob, becoming more elitist, however, they're, the SES, the, the enrollment profile of Catholic schools, the ICSIA value of Catholic schools has risen over the years. Um, so they would be faced with a real dilemma because mm. there are, you can imagine the way we would, we would respond to their opposition. You mean, Bishop, you don't want poor Catholics in your schools? <laughs> yes. It, it, we'd have a lot, Jane, I don't know if we'd succeed, but oh, gee, we'd have a lot of fun. <laughs> sure would. <laughs> okay, thank you both. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent, or if you're a kid, or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever, and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Welcome back. We've just come to the end of another DOGS program for this week. We've just been listening to some questions and answers from the web seminar that was hosted by the Australian Fabians. You can find the entire thing at the Australian Fabians website, at their Facebook page. Uh, You can find some of the graphs they're talking about at the Conversations book review on Waiting for Gonski. Uh, As I mentioned before, the dogs do not agree with some of the solutions that Tom and Chris have come up. Uh, We certainly do not believe that uh, funding of church or religious schools is going to be in the long run of benefit to society or to religion, but uh, that's one of the dog's main tenets. But uh, it's interesting to hear the discussion around trying to, I guess, interrupt that faction of... uh, elites Um, so uh, it's good that the conversation is being had but yeah if you'd like to find out more about the dog's position you can go to our website at www.adogs.com 
www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.